Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and the wolves knocking at the door. Every episode, you get a new feminist to talk about the thing we can't get off our mind. And today you've got me, Shayna Roth, a senior producer here at Slate. A little girl needs to take some goodies to her grandmother. Her mother wraps her in a red cloak, kisses her on the forehead, and sends her off into the woods with a warning. Make sure you stay on the trail. She veers off the path, and then she meets a wolf. We know the rest. My, what big eyes you have. My, what big ears you have. We know this story. We've heard it in so many different iterations, starting in childhood. I think about fear a lot. I'm a true crime author in my spare time, and fear sort of comes with the territory. But it wasn't until I came across Erica Berry's new book, Wolfish, that I realized how ingrained in our psyches fear really is, especially for women. We've basically been telling the story of what happens when a girl goes out alone or an old woman opens the door to a stranger for years. And it doesn't end well. The wolf gets her. Well, unless a nice hunts man happens to wander by. There's a lot to unpack here. Luckily, Erica Berry is going to join me after the break. Her new book, Wolfish, Wolf, Self, and the Stories We Tell About Fear is a knockout. So when we come back, we're going to explore the wolf as both real and a symbol, what it means to be a predator and prey, and how to live in this world where men and women can be both. Stick with us. Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show, and we really hope you are and you want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, I really suggest that you check out some of our other episodes, too. We've had some really great conversations lately. We've been diving into menopause, why yoga costs so much, and pre-motherhood anxiety. Trust me, whether you're a parent or thinking about becoming a parent, you don't want to miss that one. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Erica Berry, author of Wolfish, welcome to The Waves. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You do this thing that I love when nonfiction writers do it. You give your book's thesis within the first 20 pages, and I want you to read that part for us. Wolfish, Wolf Self, and the Stories We Tell About Fear, is the story of the hunter and the hunted. It's the story of the girl in the forest and the creature in the cage— about who gets to be predator and who gets to be prey. It's about my obsession with an animal and about how it impacted my reckoning with the things that scare me, both personal and cultural, as I learn to live beside them. It's about growing up in increasingly unlivable habitat and about the lies and lessons we tell about our fears, which is to say, about one another. Why did you want to write an entire book about fear, specifically Fear with the wolf as your overarching, I'm going to call it a mascot, for lack of a better word. I started researching wolves um, repopulating my home state of Oregon when I was a college student, and I was working on this environmental studies thesis. 
And I hadn't realized then that the topic was so controversial. Like one female reporter I'd heard writing about the issue had gotten death threats. And I'm a very like, try to see all sides Libra. And I was really like riding on the hubris of being 21 years old and thinking like, I'll just go in and ask the questions and figure out the policy and like everybody will get along. Um, but a couple of things happened that really expanded how I was thinking about wolves and the human stories around them. The first thing is that a guy who had approached pretty flirtatiously when I was in an Eastern Oregon bar, I'm on a reporting trip there, and he heard what I was um, writing about and mimed shooting up the bar. Like it was like the switch flipped. Um, he started saying it was very simple what should happen with wolves. And I'm sitting there looking at him, put his fingers into a gun shape, pointing them at me as well, right? And I had this real feeling of like, oh shit. Thinking of the other women who've gotten death threats. And it was very clear, like, you're mad about the wolf, but you're also mad about so much else. And it began to feel like I couldn't write about this four-legged animal without thinking about sort of like the projections that are onto them. Um, in so much dominant Western culture, the wolf is this kind of like proxy for the evil other. It's aligned with masculine violence and power. And I think, you know, I was interested in how America and Western Europe, this sort of strand of it, people there are obsessed both with killing and with becoming the wolf, right? It became very clear to me that like questions around what is a rational or irrational threat about my own things that I was experiencing in my own life actually existed like on the same web as the wolf. Um, there was one other experience that happened right as I got to graduate school where I'm, I've just moved to Minneapolis and I'm walking down the street and I was grabbed um, by a man I didn't know. He grabbed me from behind as I was walking and I like had a keychain of pepper spray in my purse, but I felt totally unable to reach for it. I hadn't had that sort of experience before where it was like, there was no fight or flight. I kept thinking like your body has to fight or flight and it just didn't, it froze. Right. And, um, in that case, another stranger intervened and I was able to escape, but it really rewired my experience of like moving. And honestly, it felt like dragging a body through the world. Um, once this sort of unthinkable thing had happened, like a stranger who I told myself was not going to hurt me actually tried to. Um, it felt like that could happen everywhere. And so then, of course, I'm thinking about Little Red Riding Hood. And I think like I entered this stage of my life at this point, it was in my sort of mid early 20s, where anticipatory fear was really like an engine of narrative in my life. Um, I was sort of really subscribing to this like fan fiction of dread. And the anticipation of this catastrophized moments took a whole huge toll. Like it wasn't just like what had already happened, it was imagining it. And I think so much of that sort of anxiety is a story we tell about what we think our futures will hold, right? And I felt like, okay, maybe I can't like change the violence of patriarchy, but maybe I can like change the story in my head. And I wanted to like think about what stories I'd inherited on this subject. And I realized at that point that like wolf folktales had actually taught me a lot about what it was supposed to be like to occupy my own body. Um, I think I quote Maggie Nelson, who writes that this idea that like women are born feeling already dead and Little Red Riding Hood seemed to me responsible for problematic narratives, both around wolves and women. Right. And I wanted to untangle them sort of for both of our benefits. Um, and I guess the last thing I would say is that I felt really distressful about stories I'd been told about fear, honestly, um, stories about who was predator, who was prey, victim, villain, like, I didn't trust those stories. I didn't trust the world or the power dynamics that had sort of like 
preached those stories. Um, but that meant that I was also having a really hard time trying to figure out how to live beside fear in my own body. And I guess I felt like to dismantle those stories about the big bad wolf, I wanted to think about like who he was supposed to be chasing. And that was my own experience. One thing I have to say about your book is once you start thinking about wolves, you see them everywhere. You see that imagery everywhere. You hear it everywhere. All of a sudden, you're like, I have been surrounded by wolf culture for a very long time. And it's really ingrained in that story of Little Red Riding Hood, which you mentioned. And you write in your book, if I just untangled Little Red's story, I thought maybe I could free us from it. Free the women, free the wolves. I could be the huntsman smirking with my axe. I see now this was wishful thinking. Talk us through that. One of the stories about Little Red Riding Hood is that it's a story that tries to teach you how to be safe. Um, and it's the idea that a parent's job to this two children is to like dose fear and to sort of say, well, here, here's the morals that will help you walk through the woods. And I think one of the challenges I had was... I was raised not to be afraid. Like I kind of came of age in this sort of like girl power 2000s. It was very like, you can do anything. And this, you know, speaks to my own white girlhood in particular. But like, I think realizing that some amount of fear was going to be useful for me was part of what was really hard. I didn't want to accept this sort of like bitter pill at the at the root of Little Red Riding Hood, which is that actually sometimes you will be walking in the woods and someone will grab you. If you know that's possible, like, how does that affect the journeys you want to take? Like, I, I think I thought a lot about um, there's something had been robbed from me, it felt like, after that time being grabbed. There's, there's multiple experiences. I'm sure many people listening to this, you've all had your own experiences where you feel like your world shrinks and becomes smaller. And I really wanted to be someone that was, like, pushing myself out into the forest to, you know, to use forest as, like, a, the metaphor. I didn't know how to dose that fear in, inside myself. In one part of your book, you talk about how, as a cis white woman, you had, as a kid, the privilege of being able to control how your body was read. You could dress feminine or masculine and give off the sort of stereotypical appearances of those sexes. And as you got older, this changed and you started to fall into teendom and, quote, wait for crushes the way you waited for sunshine in Oregon Spring, which, my God, when I read that quote, I was like, oh, it's me. Hi. <laughs> There's my teenageness. And then you went to a girl empowerment summer camp, which was fascinating. And it was the first time a woman told you, quote, men were out to trick us. And I know you wrote this book as a cis heterosexual woman, but how do other identities, queer, transgender, non-binary, et cetera, and other races fit into what you're trying to tell us about the wolf and about fear? You know, I think part of this does go back to these sort of most archetypal versions of Little Red Riding Hood that so many uh, people in, say, America have inherited, which is that, like, Little Red is, of course, this archetypal victim, but she's also, by being kind of essentially like blonde and cute and adored by her village in most of these picture books. Like she's somebody who the dominant culture, the your average woodsman like wants to save. So she's a victim, but she's also by nature of her identity, like inoculated against other forms of systemic violence. And that actually gives her this power too. And so it made me think a lot about constructions of victimhood in our culture. And, you know, this isn't just like me projecting, like I found research about a Nazi propaganda version of Little Red Riding Hood, where a man wearing an SS uniform saves little blonde Little Red Riding Hood from the wolf, right? 
Um, so there's this story's been racialized for so long. And I think it's important to understand that Little Red Riding Hood is constructing a narrative around a certain form of white girlhood, one that is innocent and worthy of protection, right? And in the book, I quote the writer Sarah Ahmed, who said, violence hovers around the deviant. Little Red Riding Hood is not the deviant, right? Like she does go off the path, but she's also sort of like the OG cute kid on the milk carton. Being classified as a victim, there's of course a powerlessness to that, but I also think journalist Ruby Hamad has this great quote, like being a damsel provokes the protective urge. And so one of the things that these wolf stories make me think about is like so many folks never get to be seen as a victim. Um, Tressie McMillan Cotham writes really brilliantly about this in her essay collection, Thick. You know, this extends to like the idea of crying wolf as well. Like whose lies about being in danger get believed? Who gets to say, I see this person, they're a threat, go get them, go kill them, (laughs) right? Like um, power is so tied up in these stories. And, you know, I think fear often gets sort of talked about. It's this like evolutionary wired thing in us when in fact, it's a taught thing, right? It's metabolized differently across our bodies. My mother's choice not to make me feel afraid was not a choice that many black and brown mothers are going to make if they're raising, you know, sons in America. Like, again, this goes back to the idea of how do we dose fear to keep our children alive? Um, to bring this back to the wolves, if I see a wolf in the forest and I code it as a threat, I imagine that like I'm the prey and the wolf is the predator, but a wolf is much more likely to be killed by a human than a human is to be killed by a wolf. Like there's no comparison. And I think just because an animal or a person gets labeled as being a predator does not mean that they, that gives them power, right? Like people feeling afraid of you does not make you safe. Um, And so I thought about this. I mean, one of the things that I think both wolves and humans, it's interesting to think about is that both of us can be both scary and scared. We can be both predator and prey. Yeah. I mean, I think that was one of the really interesting concepts that I, I pulled from your book is this idea that the wolf is not the all-powerful. We think of this image of the wolf as being like, oh, the lone wolf. It's the image of the alpha male. But in reality, wolves are so much more complex than that. Oh, totally. And I think, you know, so many of the, like, things I wanted to break down where it's like once you start seeing wolves everywhere, you're like, I want to break down all these harmful associations. And like, I came across these trainings that I would have to check if they've stopped doing this. I know that it's got a lot of bad publicity. Um, But there were trainings given to police officers that were referred to as sheepdog seminars around the US. And the idea that they were sort of positing was that all people are either peace loving sheep, evil wolves, or the sheepdogs who are the protectors, and officers were taught to be the protectors. And that idea that like violence is inherent in some bodies. And if you see it, you just got to attack it. Like, to me, that's a perfect example of how this sort of strand of dominant Western rhetoric around the wolf is so harmful both to humans and animals, right? Like, it is assuming a false sort of um, character. Like, wolves are not innately going to attack humans. They're just not. They're going to run from you, likely. They're also not going to innately attack sheep. Like, wolves coexist among livestock, and they're not just like, if you see one, you're toast, right? And so I think, like, looking at stories around the wolf show us how harmful it is to personify animals as villains, but also to animalize humans, right? And like, there's a feedback loop that I felt like some, there's like writing, environmental writing that wasn't acknowledging the ways that it was also like involved in writing about gender or power, these other things, like actually they're very connected. One sort of violence perpetuates the other through the language. (laughs) 
We're going to take a break here, but if you want to hear more from Erica and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment, where today we're going to talk about how a little guy, a little wolf named OR7 became a star. He's really the hunk of this book. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Welcome back to The Waves. Erica, you did a ton of research for this book, and it inevitably required a lot of travel often alone, and sometimes doing what I now think of as the little Red Riding Hood walk, where you're out at night and it's dark. What was it like to attack a subject like this as a journalist, but also as a woman? And when were you most afraid while writing the book? 
I think one of the things that irked me at the beginning, um, irked feels like a cute word, this was like a rage experience, was that I'd be trying to write about one topic like wolves in the ecosystem. And then like on the solar reporting trip, I would feel like my my journey was sort of hijacked by a creepy experience or, or by my own fear about it, right? Um, like I'd be trying to think about, oh, the rhetoric of fear and like early laws around wolves in the colonies. And instead, like, predatory behavior would be like leaking onto the page as I was like going to the archives. And, you know, it's like you're trying to drive a car down the highway. And like, there's birds that keep like swooping in front of the windshield. And you're sort of like, okay, is this just beneath every other work of nonfiction by women? And I'm just like, they're better at hiding it than I am, because I feel like I I have to make this experience visible. So, you know, I'd like watch certain white male friends go on solar reporting trips, and they'd go, I don't know, out into these rural places where you don't have cell service. And I was really envious, right? And I think about Rachel Kodzi Gonza wrote this brilliant Pulitzer-winning feature on the making of Dylan Roof, where she says, I cannot observe without being observed. And so I think nonfiction writing that makes that clear and sort of like chips away at that myth of like the objective reporter felt really important to me with this project. I think the time that I was most afraid myself, I I do include this in the book. And it was when I decided to take this Amtrak train across the country to this like, yes, very dreamy cabin in the woods to write. Um, I was a grad student in Minneapolis at the time, and I lived in Oregon. So I was going home And I don't include in the book that like I'd recently done a similar trip with a boyfriend and we just had this like great time. The train had broken down. We'd befriended everyone. They'd given us a free ticket. And I just like do not give up a free ticket. So I was like, I will be doing this alone. It will also be great. I'll just take a 40 hour train ride without a cabin. Like you're sleeping in a seat. It's not very cool. But I had yummy snacks and beers and books. And I was like, I'm just going to veg. And I boarded late at night and pretty immediately um, I was in a the area where you sit alone and nobody else had a seatmate and a man sits down next to me and I'd sort of clocked him earlier because he had a little bit of off kilter behavior, I thought maybe under the influence. And, you know, essentially he tells me he's sort of on the run. I don't, you know, it's hard to tell exactly what that means. He's dealing with addiction. And also we're both going to Portland. So I have like 40 hours, potentially. I was in the window. He was in the aisle and I'm trying to read. He's looking at me. He's talking to me. I just was like clear that I wasn't going to be able to get a good night's sleep. Um, I was very hypervigilant. But at the same time, like I've inherited sort of this nice habit of my father's, I guess, which is like being very open and chatty with strangers. And, you know, this is part of why I like being doing the writing I do is I like like talking to people. And I felt like I had this like internal collision of people pleasing, which is also, you know, this gendered thing that I very much appease chat, be nice. And also this urge to self-protection, right? And I, so it was like these two sort of female, what I think of as female instincts deep inside me were sort of like warring it out. And so I end up moving. And I think I had the experience that is probably familiar to many listeners where I thought I just have to do this super nice because I don't want to um, anger him, right? And at the same time, I'm like, surely this guy does not really care. Like I'm making, I sort of thought I was probably being narcissistic if I imagine that he's going to be upset if I move, like get over yourself. Right. And the guy sits down next to me the next morning. He's found me and he didn't know I was a writer, but he hands me a notebook and he says he has all these letters that he wants me to read. And I was kind of like, I don't have time. And he just was like, very serious. He puts the book kind of like in my lap and tells me he'll be right back. And I think the first thing that I thought was like, what if he's planning something violent on the train? Um, It was my worst fear. So I I thought I have to look, right? And to my shock, some of the letters 
were actually written to me and they were about me. And he refers to me as this young girl. And he's like asking if I'm evil because I left him. Like my worst fear of like, what if I piss off this guy by leaving? He was like extremely mad. He wrote me a book of letters, right? And um, he tells me he's going to like let me in on this secret that he's not telling anyone else. My body was so shocked and sort of like, I think one of the strange things was just the validation actually, like my worry had been right. And I think I thought, God, for so long, I'm this like, I have a catastrophizing brain. But part of why I think you get a catastrophizing brain is that like multiple things happen to you that you think there's no possible way this is going to happen. And that was what happened in this case. The police got involved and the guy got kicked off the train. It was the idea was like, if we kick him off, we'll be safe. You'll be safe. And like in one way, that's true. But I think I really started thinking about the idea that like as someone interested in restorative justice, like that's a that's actually like an unsatisfying conclusion. Um, and what he gets kicked off in like rural eastern Montana and then what, you know? And so yeah, to me, this was also a story. It became not just about fear and my own experience of it, but like how we talk about threat and how we respond to threat. Reading that part, I feel like pretty much every woman can pull different pieces from that experience because while the specific is very much what happened to you, there's so many elements of that that like every woman has experienced. I can't even really explain the number of times where I've been like, I'm going to go on this trip by myself and it's going to be great. I'm going to go. I'm going to get some writing. And then at like eight o'clock at night hits and it's dark and you're by yourself. And whether it's real or imagined, suddenly like that fear that, oh, God, something's going to happen to me because I'm a woman alone or I'm walking around on a trip by myself. Is somebody you know following me? Does somebody know that I'm alone? Let me use a fake name. Let me give a fake backstory when somebody asks, hey, are you just in from out of town? It's so real. And it feels like a very female presenting or feminine instinct to be afraid and also to have some man come and ruin your time. And, you know, like after that experience, there were these other guys who'd been in the car with me who were sort of like, oh, we're so sorry. Like, we wanted to say something like we wanted to come protect you, but like we didn't. And I was like, I don't want your protection either. You know, like this is not the solution (laughs) to my problem. And I just want all of you to leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just trying to read like in a little box. We've been kind of dancing around the true crime force field that is in our culture. Our lingering obsession with true crime as a society is something that I constantly wrestle with, both as a consumer and someone who has written true crime books. And I kept finding influences and shades of that throughout your book, sometimes really head on and sometimes a little bit sort of around the edges. And when you tell friends you're going to go write alone in the woods, they joke that you should, quote, try not to get murdered. (laughs) And even the first line of your book in the introduction starts very true crimey with this is one of those stories that begins with a female body. In this case, it's a wolf that is that female body. But I'm curious to know, how do you feel this fascination? Particularly, it's it's very much a female fascination. You know, women are some of the major consumers of true crime. Uh, what is this fascination with true crime? How has that shaped how we think of fear and deal with fear? First, I just have to plug Rachel Monroe's book, Savage Appetites. And I think that really like informed my perspectives on women's relationship to true crime as the victim, the villain, the detective, like all these different roles, right? So this book, I think it's, it, I was very fixated on how we go through our lives enacting these inherited stories that we so often just think like, 
this is just me being me, right? But like, we fall in love according to cultural scripts. I was like, we also fall into fear according to them, right? And I became interested in the way that actually the fairy tale is sort of like the OG true crime. There's this girl in the woods who's killed. The town sets out to find her. It's a story that exists to teach a certain lesson, but also there's like an element of these stories are told between women um, and they're told to keep you safe <laughs> by re- by rehearsing what she did wrong. Like we will learn. And, you know, I, I wanted to start the book in a way that kind of conjured that trope of like, look, we're used to stories that begin with a dead woman. I don't like that. (laughs) I'm sick of that. But also, how can I like invert that and play into that expectation? And I think we expect the wolf from Little Red Riding Hood, you know, to be the killer or the threat. But of course, like in real life, so often the wolf is actually the killed. And what does it mean to like conflate those two? Um, And I think I'm fascinated with similar to you, like I gravitate sometimes towards these stories, but it, it, it has a, it's a sort of like dress rehearsal for experiences. And I think, you know, it, it's kind of a cliche of like an essayist to quote the root of words, but I do think it's interesting that the word fear has its roots in this old English word um, that connotes like sudden danger or ambush. And I was talking to my sister about it and she was like, you know, maybe if we're playing out fear, we're like defanging it in a sense. Like we can't be ambushed by the thing that we're waiting for. And I think in a certain way, like I gravitated towards these stories of true crime at times because I was like studying how like you could escape from a car trunk. I remember that was like a big teenage brain uh, inquiry one afternoon that felt like just as sensible as reading like what to do when the big earthquake comes to Oregon. Like my worry was a form of like preparation. But I'm cu- you said you wrote true crime. I'm curious like how you think about fear. So I used to be a prosecuting attorney before I became a journalist. And at some point along the way, after I became a journalist, I was approached to write a true crime book. It's a series of cold cases. Throughout writing that book, I had some of those similar feelings of like inserting myself into what was going on and like really judging myself for writing the book in the first place and thinking a lot about like, what am I contributing to the society? Is it healthy for people to think about murder so much or disappearances and things like that so much. And I really stepped away from consuming any true crime for a while after I wrote the book because I was just like, I don't even know. And I got asked to write another book and that's what I'm working on right now. And my approach to it is totally different. This time I was like, I don't want to do cold cases. I really don't want to do a lot of murder. I want to do other crimes. Let's do, let's talk about train heists. Let's let's talk about bank robberies. Let's talk about the Mona Lisa being stolen. I'm t- approaching it more from like a historical lens than from a true crime lens because I was just like, I'm interested kind of in the genre. I would like to write another book, but also I don't want to feel so icky, which you know, I never want to yuck people's yum. And I definitely don't want to judge the hundreds of thousands of people who consume true crime on a daily basis. But it is something that I have just constantly been wrestling with of like, why do we like this thing so much when we are the primary victims of the menace of these stories? Well, and that also makes me think that like, you know, I'm just very aware of like, having the limited bandwidth that I do, like if the stories that I'm telling myself about what happens when you go for a walk at night, if they're all about women who get killed in those circumstances, like that is going to leak into how I live. And I think in the same way, like you can, you can read about, you can research the few, very, very few wolf attacks on humans and you can like fill your brain with them. And that can be the dominant story. But like, I think we sort of owe um, our brains like a better ratio (laughs) 
of stories, you know, and I'm like, I really gravitate towards stories about people that do do these adventures or journeys um, and survive. I don't know, it's, it's, it sounds so basic to survive, but like, you know, I grew up very obsessed with Nancy Drew stories and she was always like going on adventures and in danger. Like she was sort of simultaneously, she'd be like afraid and also brave and fear and curiosity can go hand in hand. And this was something that I actually learned about thinking about wolves um, where young wolves are very afraid, but fear does not always like shut you down. It can also be a way of like, we'll get out there, like go investigate that thing. Like I'm going to go look around. And I think I've thought about that actually in my own life. Like sometimes fear feels like it's like closing a door of experience, but sometimes maybe just like being aware but also still having that curiosity that's really big, which is maybe like feeling both a little bit like a victim, but also like the investigator can actually sort of like get you out the door in an interesting way to like poke into something. Erica Berry is the author of Wolfish, Wolf Self and the Stories We Tell About Fear. Erica, this has been just a fascinating, enlightening conversation. And your book is just absolutely killer. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by myself, Shayna Roth. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer and Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We would love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. Thank you so much for being a Slate Plus member. And since you're a member, you get this weekly segment. Today, Erica and I are going to talk about a time in 2012 when people were calling for a wolf to be president. Erica, tell us about the real love story in Wolfish. Who is OR7? OR7 is just this incredibly sexy wolf that I, along with many other people all around the world, Uh, He kind of put wolves on the radar for me. I was a college student at the time, and I was not what you would call like a wolf person. Um, But suddenly this wolf started grabbing headlines, and it was in my home state of Oregon. And OR7 was the seventh wolf collared in Oregon. Um, Biologists had collared both him and his sister. They collar wolves as a way to help track the pack and also sort of like alert livestock owners like, oh, we've got a wolf coming nearby. So they could start to notice when OR7 left his pack. And it's fairly common for a wolf to, it's called dispersal. They do it when they're young. And it's like, you know, this goes back to sort of the myth of the lone wolf very often. Um, In real wolf speak, that's like a wolf actually going to look for a mate usually or like look for new territory. So it's like alone because he wants to find someone else. And so OR7 sets out from his pack in northeastern Oregon and wanders across the Cascades towards the coast. Um, And he quickly became the first wolf in western Oregon since wolves had been exterminated in the 1940s. And so he sort of like starts breaking these records. And biologists could notice that they could see on his GPS collar that he started, he was wandering pretty far because there were no other wolves in Oregon at this time. Like there was sort of the beginning of wolves beginning to repopulate the area. And so, you know, our sort of tendency to anthropomorphize, it was like this guy, there was this one headline. I remember like, he's looking for love in all the wrong places. And he was (laughs) like, he was just not going to find another wolf. It seemed there could have been a wolf that like wasn't collared, but it, it didn't look good for him. And so the media kind of picks up on it. And he, at some point he goes into California and he becomes the first wolf in California in decades. Right. 
And he walks right by the spot where the last wolf had been trapped, um, which like in the 1940s. So there's just sort of like this poignancy of like, what does it mean to be coming back? And is he going to die? There's so many ways a wolf on its own is at threat. It's harder to hunt. There's roads. There's hunters, right? People do not love wolves wandering around, not all people. And so a nonprofit in Oregon had the idea to run a competition to help name him with like, maybe that will... Um, help buoy him. He's he's going to be harder to kill if he's a celebrity, right? And so people entered this contest from all over the world. I think there was like Finland, Nigeria, like all over. And the winning name was Journey, which what two multiple, I think like fourth graders had submitted that name, right? Which then it just like conjured this whole... Um, You know, there were song references, don't stop believing, he's going to find it. He became this kind of icon. And I think, you know, this goes back to how we talk about wolves, which is often in the sort of like dominant Western narratives, they're the villain, but there's also a sense of like this obsession with them as freedom and sort of a restorative, like the wolf symbolizes like nature is healing kind of. And, you know, that's a trope. That was just some of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to slate.com slash the waves plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash the waves plus.